0: Welcome to EdTech Insiders. In this podcast, we talk to educators and educational technology, investors, thought leaders, founders, and operators about the most interesting and exciting trends in the field. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an educational technology veteran with over a decade of work at leading EdTech companies. Gauthier Van Malderen is the co-founder and CEO of the University Digital Library, Perlego. Gautier decided to start Perlego as a Cambridge student after realizing how many people were having problems financing their textbooks. In 2017, he decided to found a subscription service to provide all the textbooks a student would need in ebook form at an affordable price. Perlego raised $50 million in March this year out of $75 million of total funding to expand its business after seeing the platform boom throughout COVID-19. The London-based startup currently has 400,000 paying subscribers who get all-you-can-read access to some 850,000 titles, textbooks, fiction, and other literature that students are assigned as coursework at universities and other higher learning institutions. It works with 5,000 education publishers, including Cengage, Routledge, Cambridge University Press, Elsevier, and Harvard University Press. That catalog makes PerLego the largest online textbook subscription service in the world. PerLego has also won 26 awards for EdTech, including Europa's Best EdTech, Virgin Voom, and the KPMG Pioneer Award. Gautier van Maldrin, welcome to EdTech Insiders. Hey, thanks for having me. Gautier, you are one of the youngest entrepreneurs we've ever had on the show. Prolego is not even your first venture. Tell us about your journey in entrepreneurship and what brought you into the edtech space.
1: Sure. So when I was at university, I had a small marketing agency which basically collated Facebook pages. We had a page called Student Life which had over at the time over 4 million likes and basically we'd post funny videos which would relate to students and people would like those pages. And then we did some advertising on those. Those worked really, really well. We had Girl Life, 9 to 5 Life, 90s Life, and Student Life. And we sold that to a big media group. I got a bit of money from that. And then whilst I was doing my master's, one of the big pain points I had was very expensive price of textbooks. And I thought, okay, maybe we should give this a go, try and build a subscription service for academic content. I didn't launch the business straight away. I actually started working at the Financial
0: Times I absolutely hated it. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to give this uh, this startup uh, idea a go. Absolutely. And, you know, you started ProLego in 2017, and it's just grown enormously. You, you know, you describe ProLego as sort of the Netflix or the Spotify of textbooks. So give our listeners a, an overview of what ProLego is, why it's called ProLego, and what it offers for students, educators, and publishers.
1: Sure. So ProLego means the verb to read in Latin, I read, I scan over And basically there's a problem on both sides. So on the student side, students are really frustrated by print as a format. A lot of students today find that a bit old fashioned and a bit, you know, lumbersome and annoying to carry to university. They also find the content very expensive. So on the student side, we're seeing a shift from ownership to access models. And we're seeing that price sensitivity with textbook prices having gone through the roof over the last you know, 20 years. Students are looking for more more affordable solutions. And then on the publisher side, you know, if we look at the big publishers, they lose a huge amount of money due to the secondhand book market. Students selling secondhand books to other students, and then what's really hurt them even further is the massive rise of piracy. Right, so students typing in "macroeconomics edition free PDF," and then they find lots of websites where you can download illegal, sometimes bad quality versions of the PDFs. But that's another thirty percent of lost revenue for the publishers. So. On the student side, super unhappy with the status quo. On the publisher side, look, publishers are only monetizing about 36% of the potential revenues. The solution we Um, built is a simple space where students can find all their core learning material. For publishers, less priority and for students, a much more affordable solution.
0: Yeah. So you're mentioning, you know, on the student side, affordability is really key. And, you know, we've gotten to a really strange place in terms of the the cost of textbooks, which is, you know, one of your big insights in, in founding ProLego. Give us a little insight, you know, why did textbooks get so expensive in the first place? You know, why are these chemistry textbooks for colleges, you know, $150, $200? And, you know, what have you heard from some of the students that use Perlego? that what has happened by decreasing those crazy prices? Have you been able to keep students in college? Have they gotten tons more money to use on other things? I'd love to hear you talk about affordability. Sure, so to answer the first question, The reason textbook prices spiral through the roof is due to the
1: cannibalization. And historically, this was in print. So let's give an example. Let's say a big publisher sells 10,000 copies of Introduction to Economics to the first year students at a university in the US. In the second year, already 6,000 copies will be recirculated in the second-hand book market. So they'll only sell 4,000 new editions. So what would happen is every three years, they would release a new edition saying, Intro to Eco 101 Edition 2, that would be an extra $8 because they had to justify the difference with an extra chapter or a few more changes, and that's how it continues to compound And some of these books which are now on Edition 16, 17 are costing $200, $300. So on the more around the affordability side and, and how Collego helps with that, I think it's really important to note that globally we have 252 higher education learners, right, be it at university, lifelong learners, And today, textbooks only tailor the needs for about 42 million, the 19.8 million students that we have in Europe, and then about 21 million higher education students that we had in the US last year. This year will be a bit less, but let's just say roughly 40 million. If we look at places like India, piracy is 100%, right? I don't know if you've ever been, but if you go to a university, you have these massive universities and you can literally buy photocopies of the books and they look so professional for maybe one or two dollars. And if we look at other territories, you know, some places like one of my friends went to Zambia and to get those textbooks, those print textbooks sent out there is very expensive, very costly, that it just doesn't make sense. So you can drive accessibility and affordability in two ways. One, on the affordability side, because you don't have to pay for print distribution wholesale costs, it's a much more efficient model to sell content. Basically, one ebook publishers can sell across the world, so they're much more efficient from a cost perspective. And then I think the nice thing for publishers as well, it's a recurring revenue line. So what you tend to see is maybe a student might use textbook for three months and never use it again. Well, on Palego they might dip into it in their third year, their fourth year, and that continues to build recurring revenue. On the affordability side, I think, again, a big thing for publishers is, yes, you might think, oh, I'm making less money because I'm selling a $100 textbook, and now I'm going to be making maybe $30, $40 on my textbook. But actually, you're making your total addressable market much bigger because you can serve way more students. And then again, we've seen it in the music, in the movie industry, if you provide convenience and accessibility and affordability, well, less people will go to pirated channels because they won't see price as such a big challenge for them to, to buy the content in the first place.
0: You know, I hadn't realized that piracy and that need to continually put out new editions was one of the main driving factors behind the spiraling cost of textbooks in the first place. It's really interesting. And then, you know, opening up the total addressable market, allowing people from countries all over the world to actually access textbooks from top publishers is obviously enormously valuable. I'm curious if you've heard from some of the students, even in the U.S. or U.K. or throughout Europe, who have seen enormous changes in terms of their finances by using ProLego instead of you know having to buy full print textbooks the way they have in the past. There's no question that for an Indian learner or for people all around the world, it would be game-changing. What do you hear from people even in the markets that are the traditional markets for textbooks? So the average student spend on academic content in the UK is £469. In the US,
1: $1,200 right now. Of course, that changes depending on the course and the year of study. If you're a first-year undergrad student studying biology, you might actually spend a bit more because you've got to use all the courseware products as well. And I'm sure you've heard of the massive rise of open access material, OER content, One of the big challenges with OER is the quality of the content isn't always there and it's frustrating for the instructors and the professors to adopt that content because you don't have the ancillary material around it. So I can confirm that for students, we're saving them a ton of money. But I think as well, what's really important is because you're paying basically the the price of $18 in the US a month, you can dip into any content. So what we're seeing is students might study medicine but they might dip into a history book or uh, a computer science PHP coding book in their free time. So you're opening up that breadth and depth of knowledge and not just focusing on that one niche piece of content that you might be studying at university. And then I think a really important thing to note as well is about, I'd say 30% of our subscriber base are lifelong learners. So maybe someone like yourself, you might be like, oh, subscribe to Polego. It's like my online library. They have all the best nonfiction titles on how to build businesses or, you know, coding is, again, something I'm mentioning. And I'm seeing that education is becoming much wider and not just your four years at, at university
0: anymore. And it's everyone's reskilling, upskilling during their careers, and Pelago is becoming a tool for that as well. Yeah, that, that's a really exciting sort of byproduct, I would say, maybe it's purposeful byproduct of a subscription model, is that you by opening up the entire textbook library for a single cost, just like the way Spotify or Netflix does. It allows students to go interdisciplinary to, as you say, if you're a medical student, maybe you're reading about the history of medicine in a textbook you would never have been able to, you never would have, you know, dipped into or even thought about buying in the past. And I'm sure that's true across many, many disciplines. It's really exciting. And, you know, ProLego clearly has a lot of benefits for students. The subscription model lowers costs, they get more access, they get Content outside of print. Talk to us a little bit, and I know you've already begun to say some of this, but about some of the advantages for publishers. So, piracy, secondhand book market are two very big ones. What do you hear from publishers when you ask them about ProLego? Why do they get excited to offer their content? You have 5,000 education publishers. Yeah. I think ultimately to publishers, we provide four main benefits. One of them is, as
1: a streaming service, we have all the data in terms of consumption trends, right? So what I think is really interesting, especially with textbooks, and that's why subscription model and textbooks make sense, is being quite honest, and publishers see this now, students don't read a textbook from A to Z. They might read two chapters here, three chapters there, four chapters there. And so you can provide all that data back in this really cool publisher dashboard where they can see, whoa, most of my students are only reading chapter four, five, and six. Maybe I have to reconfigure the content in my next edition. The second is a much more efficient distribution model. We talked about it. You don't have your whole print and, and you don't have your retail markup. You don't have to pay 40% margin back to Amazon. So a more efficient, sustainable way to distribute the content. And the sustainability angle is something that a lot of students are very conscious about today, right? Like it's crazy, but a big thing is I'm not going to buy a 200 print page textbook because sustainability is at the core of how I think about purchasing my products. So the second is more efficient distribution and sustainable channel. The third is, as we talked about, increasing the total addressable market. And by being an aggregator, publishers don't have to do the marketing to students anymore. So historically, some of the big textbook publishers would have to go on campus, try and get adoptions. You don't have that. So again, a much more efficient sales and marketing model. And then I think the fourth is incremental revenue with professional lifelong learners. We have a few corporate clients who are buying Perlego for as an employee package, right, you get all the best coding books thanks to your company. Again, as an aggregator, you can sell into those verticals, whilst as a single publisher, it would be very difficult for you to do so.
0: Very comprehensive answer, and it makes a lot of sense. It's interesting. I think we've seen some of these new models of media enter the education space over the last few years, and I think Perlego is one of the most exciting models of Sort of taking that subscription mindset and that digitization mindset, you know, instead of you know lumbering, cumbersome print textbooks that you have to pay middlemen and ship them to Zambia, you know, use ebook content, get use streaming services, subscription model, and it just really changes the economics and the accessibility. So it's it's really interesting to hear. I wanted to get your take on one interesting piece of news this week, which is that Pearson recently announced they're turning some of their textbooks into NFTs so that they can track the digital rights and make sure that, you know, as they potentially get resold, they're totally trackable. I'm curious about your thoughts on this strategy versus, you know, streaming and subscription and whether this sort of Web3 technology has any role in digital rights management.
1: Yeah, I think it's very interesting. We're seeing that come across in music as well now, in art. I'm sure you've seen in that as well. I personally don't see it and I don't get it. And I'm also surprised about the backlash from students and from faculty and from professors. I also read the Guardian article, the Verge article, those that came out. And a lot of people are very upset because they feel this is a way how publishers can profiteer even further on the content, right? So it's a, it's a way for them to, again, right. make the content less affordable by monetizing the second-hand book market piece. So I think it's a very exciting headline. I think it's a it's a good press story. But in reality, I just don't see how that could potentially work. And and I was really surprised about the backlash from the kind of student and professor community on how pretty much they're against it. So I think what I kind of want to stress is what publishers have to do is provide convenience, affordability, and build a product that students want to use and students love. And I think Pelego can be a channel for them to sell their content, distribute their content, and the whole NFT piece, I can't get my head around it yet, but maybe I'll be wrong on that. We could talk about that in a year or two. <laughs> I don't know. What are your thoughts, actually, if I could ask? Do you see it as well?
0: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, from what I've seen so far, I think it feels like an alternative approach to try to address a similar problem to what you were mentioning for publishers earlier on, which is that once a textbook is out in the world it decreases the value of other textbooks it becomes resellable it becomes it goes into a sort of vast secondhand you know textbook market and because textbooks are so overinflated in price then the secondhand market is super appealing so i sort of sympathize with some of the the naysayers in this saying hey making this into an nft yes it makes it resellable but it also gives the original publisher total insight into Transparency into everything that ever happens with that book, and it feels a little bit like a like a big brother move. Even though I, I'm sure that that's not how Pearson is uh, trying to frame it, it feels a little like instead of just having open rights, it's saying, okay, now we're going to truly monitor everything that ever happens with this this piece of content. Which I, I'm not sure that's actually beneficial to students. I think
1: what's interesting is Pearson really is becoming almost like a technology company, and under Andy Bird's leadership, he was ex-Disney. We're seeing. That's becoming, it's no longer an old school textbook publishing, a very interesting business. But it's going also completely counter to what we're seeing as a huge movement, which is open access and, you know, journals will be all made uh, freely available in 2025. It's going like against that as well, which, hey, let's see. I think it's an interesting play in the market and hopefully we'll be able to comment on it in in a few months.
0: Yeah, definitely interesting to keep an eye on. I wanted to ask a question about the open education resource movement that you mentioned earlier. It strikes me that, you know, obviously, at heart, it's a wonderful movement to try to get content to be able to be completely free and accessible and open to students. And what, you know, you mentioned that you're the Spotify of edtech, And it strikes me as, you know, the parallels between Spotify and Napster or, you know, the original sort of free and open services that were sort of tried to make everything free and open for everyone. But as a result, there was sort of quality issues, sometimes some legal complications. And, you know, all of us who really do, you know, I care about the OER movement, I'd love to see it succeed. But I really do see your thinking around a streaming service with a relatively low monthly price allows the highest quality content without any of the downfalls of open education. I'm curious if that metaphor makes any sense to you. So I see a
1: parallel in the sense that right now, the big textbook publishers or academic publishers are very similar to the music industry in 2007, which is piracy is killing this industry. And if something doesn't change, they're going to continue to lose their money. And what I do think is interesting is with OER, it's like making a song available for free. But as we know, the best content creators need to be able to monetize their IP. And I do believe there's a huge amount of value in publishers creating premium quality content. And what they should focus on, in my view, is getting those great authors, getting, you know, as the music labels, those great artists, developing those artists, developing that content and platforms like PLEGO or other players to distribute the content. And today, publishers would go from content creation to distribution, to trying to sell that into universities, to getting the adoptions with professors I think we're going to see a change where publishers will focus on their niche, which is to create great premium quality content and other players will do the other side of the the
0: model. Makes sense. So a distribution channel is real and a platform is a really key partner for content creators. And, you know, one of the most exciting aspects of ProLego to me and I, I think to you as well is that, you know, Netflix, Spotify, Audible, cable television, some of the other really sort of innovative subscription services have really created opportunities to offer content in very new and different formats. You know, we saw Spotify started music and then move pretty heavily into podcasting, among other things. We've seen Netflix and Audible and HBO start with curation and then pivot to becoming large creators of content. And all of these platforms have escaped some of the traditional restrictions that came with entertainment content. So the length requirements are gone. There are no commercials. They can be released on any schedule all at once or, or on a cadence. I'd love to take some of that thinking and some of those innovations that have come from the entertainment world, as you've been mentioning, and think about what they might look like in an educational content ecosystem. I'm sure you've thought deeply about this, and I'd love to hear what you think the disruptions might look like for educational content.
1: Yeah, I love that question, and it's super interesting. So if I was to unpackage that, I think there are several things that I'm excited about, and I think it's very exciting for EdTech. The first is, if we think about the learning experience of a textbook, it's existed for hundreds of years, and it's very one-sided. You'd buy the book, read it by yourself, highlight it, and never be able to collaborate or work with other people. Now, if you have an affordable subscription service, and you're digital and purely online, You could collaborate work directly with your fellow students, your peers, your professors on the book, going from a one-side reading experience to a multi-side reading experience. That drives better learning outcomes because as we've seen is a lot of students also learn from the comments of their peers and what they're saying and the questions they answer. And that is one thing I'm super excited about is once you have that content layer, you can build that community layer on top. I think the second, which is also very interesting, is a lot of professors are creating great quality content. And just sending that via email to their students or uploading it into YouTube and just sending a YouTube link. And when I speak to professors and when I speak to students, one of the big issues they have is you don't just study off a textbook nowadays, you study off so many different formats, video content, audio content. And one thing we've we've launched a few months ago was Workspace. So the ability to aggregate all your learning content in one space. You can upload your slides, you can upload YouTube videos, you can link back to presentation and interesting articles. And by doing so, you create this beautiful workspace that you can share with your classmates, with your friends, again, making a much better learning experience. So I think... On the one side, I'm excited about collaboration and community. On the other side is about curation and aggregating not just your textbook material or your academic material and being able to share that with other students or other peers. And I would take that one step further, right? If we think about our mission to make educational content more affordable, imagine if you could work with Philip Kotler, the most popular marketing textbook author, And he creates a community on his textbook directly on Pelego where people once a month can ask him questions live or can collaborate or work and see what are the most highlighted parts within a book. That's another great way to drive better learning outcomes because you don't necessarily need to go to university anymore to learn from the best professors or authors, which, again, is maybe a big, bold vision, but I think truly can become reality very, very soon.
0: Fascinating. So I'm hearing lots of emphasis on community, community between students, community between instructors and students, multimedia, being able to combine text, video, articles, bring in external sources and combine them with the textbook. I'd love to hear you talk about the chapter issue. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, one of the benefits for publishers is that they can see that only chapters, you know, four, five and six are being read by their by their audience. I'm sure that's true for many, many, many textbooks. People don't tend to read textbooks cover to cover. Do you see a world in which a chapter of a textbook becomes a space to commune, a space to learn rather than the textbook itself? 100%. So I'll just give you an
1: analogy. There were a lot of startups about 10 years ago that would take chapters of specific books and create their own book together. And publishers absolutely hate that because it was like, I don't want to be associated to my direct capacity. Right. And very similar to how you had the album concept that now has become the song concept, you'll have the book concept become the chapter level concept where you'll read two chapters from a book, three chapters from another. And because publishers are always monetizing the content, no matter what, it won't make a fundamental difference. I see that shift happening today. And I see that in terms of consumption trends on the platform. And I think a, a very important factor to take into account in education is academic freedom, right? So you might have seen one or two publishers try to launch their own subscription services but fundamentally that resulted in high churn and not driving enough scale because you might use that textbook for one or two semesters but then you'll use another book or you might use another chapter so it's aggregation and we have over you know there are over nine thousand different academic publishers no one has enough market share to retain a student throughout the whole four years of their study so yeah i'm seeing that today and i think Who knows? Maybe that will continue on even audio content where you might only list one or two chapters and not the whole audio book either.
0: Really interesting. And I would imagine, you know, textbook publishers can also publish new content without needing to publish a new edition of the book. So if there's a new innovation, let's say in artificial intelligence for astronomy, rather than a new textbook, a new everything, they can publish one additional chapter hey, here's an here's, additional page. And because of the distribution channel of, for Lego, that can be immediately accessible to everyone who has the book. I'm curious if publishers see that as an advantage or as a disadvantage, given that the edition model has been monetarily advantageous to them in the past. I haven't seen that trend yet. What I have seen is a trend is, for example, history books, because we have
1: so there are two interesting trends I've noticed which are quite which I would have never thought. So when you see macro trends happening in the news, you see that the search results on Pelego increase. So we had, for example, the conflict in Ukraine, you see that there's a huge adoption of books on Russian history, for example. Wow. And what I'm seeing is publishers then update content but more about maybe in their courseware products. So you'll read about it in the textbook and then you might have to do a test and link through directly from Palego into the courseware but yeah I think that's definitely going to happen is where textbooks get updated on a maybe monthly by monthly basis or you know annual basis and you'll get the live version straight away again I think the really nice thing with Palego is as soon as a book is released you have it the next day on the platform so just as they send all other retail channels sometimes a print book might take you 10 days to get to you well the next day it's already live on the platform so but who knows maybe yeah I haven't seen it yet and I think that's definitely going to happen and when it does I'll I'll let you
0: know, because I'm sure that's going to happen soon. The Ukraine example is, is a fantastic example of that. That's, you know, history happening in real time, a new war. And obviously, it's relevant to the entire corpus of, of Russian history, European history, military history. And it's great to be able to see students engage in that content in real time in relationship to what's happening in current events.
1: And because the content doesn't cost them anything else, they'll dip into two, three chapters, read a bit about it. They'll search directly for a award 1981 or whatever. So I think the fact that they don't have to pay for the content on top of their monthly sub is something that also drives more consumption.
0: Yeah. This is something we've also seen in Spotify. There's been some really interesting articles about how many Spotify subscribers listen to older music rather than new music because they have access to all music at the same time and how it's actually created resurgences in, in all sorts of different type of... It's sort of made the long tail come alive. And I see a similar thing. And it's really exciting when you apply it to education because people can pull any kind of relevant content from any book. And again, you have 5,000 publishers. So this is like a very, very big corpus. So I want to drill down on the community aspect, starting with the student side. Traditional textbook interaction tended to be something of an isolating experience. So many of us who grew up, you know, over a certain age, remember having homework that sounded like, you know, read pages 124 to 135 of the textbook take notes, complete the questions at the end of the chapter. And, you know, you'd assume that that was going to be you alone with a textbook and a loose leaf binder, a very solitary activity. But as you mentioned, with Perlego, students can interact with one another, comment. There's multimedia. It's not just text at all. There's courseware. Give us a little bit of what that looks like with Perlego.
1: Yeah. So the first layer is... If I was to take you through the user flow is a professor creates a workspace, shares that and sends an email or notification to all their class. The class get a notification saying Professor Alex has added you to Alex's workspace and you have free material slides, YouTube video and you have premium content which you might have to pay a monthly subscription for. Now once you pay that subscription within the content layer you can see what are the most highlighted parts of the book and what students are commenting within that book. So where are you seeing the most engagement? What is the more contentious part in the philosophy book? What are people agreeing and disagreeing with? And for the professor, instead of manually having to reply to 90, 70, 100 emails, they just do it all directly on the content there. So also streamlining and driving them better efficient use of their time, which is, again, a big problem for the instructor. And then I think what's interesting as well on the instructor side and everything's anonymized but they can see how people are interacting with their content. So they'll be able to say, no one is reading the video content. However, everyone is reading the business case review, maybe to drive more engagement on my lectures, I should adopt more business cases because students like interacting with that content. So you can see what is getting highlighted more, what is getting more interaction driving better efficacy in the learning outcomes because students are more engaged in the content. I think the really shocking thing, right, is for professors today and instructors is their biggest problem is pre-reading ahead of class. So hardly any student reads ahead of class. So they come to class, who's done the pre-reading? Ah, sorry, you haven't done it. And through Pelago as an instructor, you can send notifications saying, hey, class, don't forget to read chapter two, three and four ahead of the class that is super powerful as well. And that creates more of a virality into our product as well and allows
0: you to have much more organic growth. Really interesting. And then, you know, you mentioned sort of what are the contentious parts of the philosophy textbook? I'd love to drill down there. So do you see students sort of debating inside ProLego around a particular, a certain claim in a textbook or disagreeing or pulling in additional resources from other textbooks to say, hey, according to this book, this is true. So what does it mean in terms of this? How do students sort of Really, choose to go deeper with the textbook experience.
1: Yeah, that's a very difficult one because you'd have to manually go into every group and try and find a way. So, one of the tools we built on top of the reader is the ability to do all your referencing. So you mm-hmm. can copy and paste directly references from the book into your essays, and we can mm-hmm. see what are the most referenced books for certain themes. So, in philosophy. Let's say Introduction to Philosophy. These six books again are referenced thousand, thousand times. And then what we do is we can cross-correlate what is being referenced against other themes. So it's not a very great form of AI yet. I would be maybe not lying, but I'd be overselling it if I said we have super fancy AI. But we do, in a very sort of soft version populate content to the relevant field of study. So if you're highlighting and commenting a lot on one book and we're seeing that there's a lot of interaction with Intro to Philosophy 101 and you're talking around maybe Rousseau, we see that we can then push Rousseau 101, his theories and his concepts that you were commenting and debating a lot as the next content layer. We need to get better at that on seeing what are the most engaged parts of the content, but I can only see the highlighting, commenting interactions, but I can't actually see what are people contentious about right now.
0: Well, the training set is there with hundreds of thousands of subscribers and uh, well, yeah, you know the yeah, there's so much data that the AI there's exactly. a lot to to figure out and and that's that's exciting. And you mentioned some of the community aspects for professors, they can aggregate materials, they can get insight into what people are actually accessing or not, they can communicate. I'd love to hear just a couple of anecdotes, you know, when you talk to professors who use Perlego versus the traditional way of assigning textbooks what sort of stands out to them most? What gets them most excited about this model versus what they've done in the past? Yeah, I think it
1: falls down to three things. Mm -hmm. So speed and efficiency. So by being digital, you can search for them directly within a book. You can find directly what you're looking for. So that's super helpful. Whilst before you had to manually look at the pages, etc. The second is no need, and, and we've talked about this, is the ability to use different formats and different textbooks to teach one class. Before, a professor would be less inclined to ask the student to buy seven textbooks because it would cost them a lot. But if you've got it all in a subscription model, you're going to take the best of all books and then you make the best of all the content you have in there. So what I'm seeing is not just using one text, several textbooks. And then of course, not just textbooks, but different content layers. And the most popular one is video. And I think audio is going to be the second growing segment. A lot of people listening to podcasts and audio books. So we need to continue to build on that. And then I think the third is... What instructors absolutely love is the ability to send push notifications to students in very subtle ways saying, guys, this is the most highlighted part of the book. Make sure to read this ahead of class next week, which drives better discussions in class because students are like, oh, I have my class next Tuesday. I better read it because if not, I'm going to become unprepared. So that translates into more active discussions. And actually we've proven that we can increase the pre-reading of about 40% with our instructor assignment piece already so far. So It's not perfect yet, but it's already a good benchmark to where it was before.
0: Yeah, that's a significant lift, especially because pre-reading is is such a black box and something that students often try to get away with not doing at all levels. This may be a strange question, but I feel like you probably have some really interesting thoughts on it. You know, One of the newer aspects of Spotify, again, which is a parallel to a lot of the things you do at Perlego, it actually offers listeners the chance to contribute directly to artists. And I'm curious, can you imagine a future in which individual professors actually might monetize the content they're adding to ProLego in addition to the publishers?
1: Yeah. So it's a really, really interesting question. I think exactly that. So what we're seeing is speaking to our user community is a lot of people are creating great quality content and not able to monetize that content. Well, imagine you're a professor and you write up a very interesting 40-page Word document around a certain theme in your class. You could upload that into the Pelega royalty model and become a micro publisher in effect. That creates unique IP, that makes more defensibility on the Pelega platform, and also is a great way for professors to have a wider reach with their audience and community, which they wouldn't be selling to anyway, and also removes the whole slow process of trying to get it published through a publisher, et cetera. So, very similar to how some edtech companies allow students to monetize their notes, I think, is a first layer will allow professors and faculty to monetize their ancillary content they can also offer that for free but maybe it's a nice you know imagine you have a thousand students reading your content that might be two three four five thousand dollars a month
0: without too much additional work and at least in the u.s you have a huge army of adjunct professors who are working really hard doing really really good work and are often underpaid this is a it's really intriguing concept to think about a monetizable model where all the work that's going into creating class content could actually become added to a subscription service and monetizable. I think that's incredibly exciting. And I think
1: also what's exciting is we see the themes that students are looking for, and some themes don't even have books. So I'm going to sound crazy here, but there's like witchcraft is a huge theme right now. Don't ask me why. And we have like seven books on witchcraft, but imagine you have a very niche professor that's going to write the history of witchcraft and stuff like that. It could be very niche, but quite a lot of people looking for that. So it could have continued to build that long tail of the education space, which the big textbook publishers can't afford to do because they need to sell a minimum 100 to 300,000 copies whilst with Palego, because you have a very low cost structure, even if it sells 600 700 copies or a few thousand students read it, you'll still make a nice margin on top of that.
0: And that reminds me of one of the other really interesting parallels with Netflix, which is that they use their extensive data to be able to sort of create micro niche content and say, okay, we know there are all these people watching these three shows, we're going to create a new show that's very much in the same theme. And we know that it might not be for everybody, but the significant number of people who like these three shows will definitely watch it, will definitely push it to them. And then you create, you know, as you say, a really interesting long tail niche content that expands what it could be a show that never would have been made in regular television era.
1: Exactly. I think one of the shows was a Spanish show which became a massive hit globally. And who would have thought that a very small niche Spanish show would become so big? Hopefully, we can do the
0: same for academic content as well. That's really exciting to think about. You mentioned that you can see on ProLego what parts of the textbook are most highlighted, and I just wanted to ask, just to give our, our audience a little bit of the understanding of the experience. You know, how do you mirror some of the traditional physical interactions that people do with textbooks? Is there a way to sort of write in the margins or underline key points or copy things out? You mentioned references. How does prolego work in terms of just the logistics of getting all of pieces of the textbook together in an ebook format? Yeah, so we get sent a PDF or ebook format to us by the publishers. And in terms of functionality,
1: I believe print is an amazing product. You can highlight, annotate, as you said, right? And we do all the same functionality, but we try and make it even better. So in print, you can't search within a book in two keywords. You can't directly plug your reference. You have to manually write your reference to the book and the page. We do that all automatically for you. So it's all the same functionality as your traditional print model, but we just try and bring it to, you know, the modern era and add lots of cool tools on top of it. So one thing I want to do in the future is the ability for you to put flashcards within the book to help you learn of the the biggest and most important themes in the textbook. So these are all tool sets that you can build on top of the content layer. And then of course, with the community layer, you can also streamline the learning experience where you can see the most highlighted parts of the book. Very similar to how medium sometimes does the most highlighted parts and articles. You could also offer that within your, once you open the ebook, you could say most highlighted parts from all the community. And that would bring that up straight away.
0: Now that's exciting to hear. you envision the use of video? Sort of, I know that you mentioned that video is sort of the number one medium that's being used and audio is second. Do you envision the video or audio notes, like that students could be able to be reading a textbook and then film themselves talking about what their response to it in a way that other students could access. Well, oh, that's very cool. I have not thought about that yet.
1: So where a student reads a really interesting book and might comment it and make a theme about it and then upload that into the Plego ecosystem as a content layer. Yeah. I think that's the beauty of once you have such a big subscriber base and you have so many, the student could create a workspace or the professor could create a lecture slide on top of the book and share that. And who knows, right? The data will tell. And, and that's the beauty of, Having a community is, we'll probably be surprised
0: at some of the things that work best, like this witchcraft I mentioned. I would have never thought that, yeah. I would not have guessed about that topic either, but it it is really interesting. It's such a fascinating model. We have a few minutes left, and I just wanted to talk about a little bit of the logistics of Perlego. It's such a, you know, you launched in the UK in 2017. You are a master's student at Cambridge, really thought about how to make this amazing model. Perlego has raised, I think, $75 million over the last five years, including a $50 million round quite recently. Where is Perlego available now? What are your biggest markets? What are your biggest languages? How has it expanded in the last few years throughout Europe or elsewhere? Yeah, so we're available basically across the world. We're not
1: available in Russia and we're not available in China. The reason we're not available in Russia, you know what's going on in the world, and the reason we're not available in China is there's quite a lot of censorship around. For example, now it's quite a big team, Taiwan, right? They don't want books around Taiwanese history to be on, on the platform. So pretty much available everywhere. are three big markets, Europe, the US. The US is actually our biggest market and growing the fastest. And that's all off SEO, so organic search on pirated intent. And then what's really interesting is LATAM is growing incredibly fast for us. I'm so surprised about the growth there, but the adoption of content, both in English and in Spanish, is growing really, really fast. Today, we're available in eight different languages, so English, German, Italian, French. We'll be opening another few. The way we think about the language is based on demand, so English is a huge language used globally everywhere. So I think probably by the end of this year, you'll already have about 15 languages on Pelego and over
0: 1.5 million textbooks, so great quite nicely on the content side of things. That's incredible. Yeah, one one and a half million textbooks that would take quite a while to to get through, through, I could imagine. It's thrilling. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the lifelong learner use case and the sort of enterprise or lifelong learner use case, because you and I met at the ASU GSV conference, and we we talked a, a little bit about this model. It's really incredible what you're doing. And somehow it never crossed my mind that, you know, as somebody who is older than traditional student would still find this incredibly interesting, the ability to subscribe to a million textbooks on every topic in the world to intermat, you know, to marry them together, aggregate, put pieces together. But coming out of this call, I think I'm going to subscribe because it really is. I mean, talk about a lifelong learner's sort of dream to be able to get access to all the top textbooks from all the top publishers with one monthly cost, what monthly payment. It's pretty exciting. I'd love to hear you talk about the future of Perlego. It's grown like crazy. You're about five years old. Where do you see Perlego going in the next five years? What are sort of the moonshot ideas that you hope to see manifested through the work you're doing?
1: Yeah. So I think over the next
0: two to three years, what I'm really excited
1: about is continue to grow that community layer, to continue to Mm -hmm. build our marketplace vision where you're not just offering textbook material, you're offering as I mentioned, right, maybe courseware. You can integrate lots of different. So really the marketplace where you find all your core learning material, those are. And then the third is empowering instructors to become micro-influencers in your ecosystem. Those are the three big themes I'm really excited from a product perspective. I think where Palego could be in five years, and this is a much bolder vision, but we know and we've all talked about how the university system is broken and degrees are incredibly expensive to attain right now. $30,000 to go to university, sometimes you've got to commute to go to university, sometimes you have to pay for your dorms, etc. Well, imagine through a learning environment where you have all the content, you can learn from the best professors on a community that they're working with all the instructors. Potentially, else you could also offer the ability to do micro-degrees degrees, where students at their own self-paced can could complete the content on the back of that you could add gamification layers you could add, add rewards there's a really interesting one where we were approached by a big coffee chain who said if a student reads two books a month or three books we will offer them two three coffees for free a month i mean it's just a silly concept but you can add so much to the ecosystem to drive better learning outcomes but yeah for me it's ultimately we're on a mission to make educational content more affordable and i think the next layer to that is potentially offering after the content layer you could offer maybe the degree layer as well. I know lots of companies like Coursera, a lot of companies are doing this. So maybe it's about building that partnership. Who knows? I think for the next two years, we've got our product roadmap pretty much secure. we still got to do a lot. But yeah, that's kind of me. The big bold mission is maybe you don't even need to go to university anymore. You can just learn everything
0: on your online library and get a degree out of that. It's a bold and very exciting vision. I've been joking with my wife because we have a newborn baby and we just starting to put in a college savings fund together. And the when you put the college calculator together, it says that college, by the time he is old enough for it, will cost $960,000. Yeah. And being in EdTech and having this podcast, it makes me kind of gleeful, actually, because, you know, I don't think that will really happen. But if prices continue to spiral, and universities don't sort of get their act together, innovators and disruptors like Herlego and Coursera and others are going to create incredible models. And, you know, I would have my son on for Lego subscription as soon as he is old enough to appreciate it. But I really appreciate that you're thinking about things like influencing community, video, audio, you know, really taking the concept of the textbook, which is one of the sort of older fashioned ideas in education, it's been around 100 years, and bringing it very rapidly into the year 2022. And it's just thrilling to see it happen. We always end with two really quick questions. One is, what is an exciting trend you see right now in the EdTech landscape that you think our listeners should keep an eye on?
1: Oh, there's so many. I think one of the biggest trends I'm seeing is reskilling upskilling. And I'm actually surprised, look at our own data, the definition of a student, you tend to think it's an 18 to 23 year old today. It's actually a lot of them are mums of two children, for example. So the definition of a student, I'm seeing that the average age on Pelago is 29 to 33 right now, is no longer that 18 to 24. So how do we build a more flexible learning environment for people who have other obligations who are doing jobs and and are learning part-time? I think that's one. And I think for me, the second one is, I think there's a big theme around micro-credentials Micro certificates. I'm seeing a lot in the professional space, like even our own developers, they're doing AWS certification, right? So you're doing a lot more of these micro certifications throughout your career and throughout your learning experience. So I think that's another big trend that we'll see a lot of growth in over the next few
0: years. So our final question is what is one book or blog or Twitter feed or newsletter that you would recommend for anyone who wants to dive deeper into any of the topics we discussed today? Oh, that's a great question. So any book, any
1: Twitter feed. So I actually very interestingly quite like Bright Eye Ventures. It's a venture fund here based in Europe. They do some very interesting statistics on learning. They do some very interesting reports on the ed tech space. So maybe that's one. I also quite like reading. There's a guy who used to work at Pearson called Adam Black, and he's got a really interesting blog called Enabling Insights. He used to be the chief strategy officer at Macmillan some great, great input on the EdTech space and learning that I like reading on him as well.
0: Fantastic. And as always, we will put links to those resources in the show notes for this episode. Thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. ProLego is really exciting. I'm halfway through signing up for my free trial right now. I'm not even joking. Got to you, Ben Mulderan. Thank you so much for all the work you do. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for listening to this episode of the EdTech Insiders Podcast. If you liked the episode, remember to subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating and review so others can find the podcast. For more EdTech Insiders content, subscribe to the EdTech Insiders newsletter at edtechinsiders.substack.com.